I'm Ida Ruizhalme, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, The Real ESP Experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 208. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Hey, sir, hey, sir, Andras. How are you? Oh, oh, not bad, thank you. I'm about to go to um, Asia again. Yeah, I was just going to say, it looks like you're home in Hungary, but it's just for a short while then. Yeah, so tomorrow I'm going back to Bangkok, so I'll be spending the next 10 days or so in uh, Thailand. Ah. And uh, you, it's I don't know what the situation is in Sweden when it comes to how people see this coronavirus outbreak and the situation, but in Hungary people are absolutely going crazy. Mm-hmm. They're buying face masks by the hundreds yeah. from pharmacies and, and everything. And people are, keep asking me if I thought it through properly and I should probably stay here and not go to Thailand because it's dangerous. Mm. Um, so people have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, no, people are overreacting. I think in Sweden so far it's pretty sane. We have had okay. just yesterday, as we record this, there was the first case confirmed in Sweden. So we do have the disease in one person. Uh, it seems to be handled well. That person is isolated. She didn't get into contact with a lot of people after she got here. So it should be fine. But uh, yeah. We will see how this develops because it's far yes. from over. Yes, it is. But I still think now the numbers are growing very fast. That's that's for sure. Mm. But mostly in China. And we get news reporting on new cases in different countries across the world as well. But those are mostly imported cases. Mm. So people who traveled from mostly from China to those countries are the ones who are affected. A couple of cases are locally transmitted ones. So we do know of those as well, mostly in Southeast Asia, actually. Mm. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are facing a local massive outbreak and we, we should be absolutely worried. Authorities all across the world put up great measures and make good efforts into containing the yeah. the outbreaks, and that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we are we are not to visit places. For example, when it comes to Thailand, sixty million people live in the country, and there have been fourteen cases reported so far, out of which I think it was eight people who have already been released from hospital. So they they've been treated. It, it's been okay. Have you gotten a lot of uh, questions from your tourists, the ones you're guiding for? Interestingly, since the situation started to escalate only about a week or so ago, a bit more than a week ago, the last time I was there, it was already on, it's been on for a while, but no one asked me anything. Mm -hmm. Now people start actually cancelling 
their yeah. travels, yeah, I'm not their, surprised. their tours, yeah. in large numbers, actually. Oh. And not only to Thailand. There have been cancellations to Malaysia. There have been cancellations to Japan as well. So people are afraid. But it has a lot to do with how the media portrays this situation, I believe. And someone someone told, I don't, I don't remember where I heard that, but a little bit of panic is at place. Good. <laughs> is good. It's absolutely what we need in order for the authorities to act on it. But too much of it can lead to absolutely nonsensical approaches and, uh, and reactions. So yeah. we don't need that. Actually, it ties very well into this week's episode because we have an yes. interview and it's also <laughs> about being afraid of things that you don't fully understand, things that are new for you, right? Exactly, exactly. Actually, we could have asked someone on who's an expert on virology and epidemics, but I think it's been discussed on several podcasts and news outlets extensively yeah. already, so we don't need to deal with that. But there is something, an ongoing debate and an ongoing issue, which is uh, clean energy. Mm. And especially when, when it comes to new efforts being made into tackling climate change. Of course, it's an ever-growingly important topic. And this is why we invited Ida Rusholme, whom we heard at the European Skeptics Congress a couple of months ago, talking about um, clean energy and how you apply critical thinking into discussing that, and how she became nuclear power advocate. Mm, yeah, very interesting interview. Yeah, it is. So uh, we've pre-recorded the interview and uh, why don't we move on to actually releasing that? Let's do that. Every now and then we interview someone whose life and or work as a skeptic might be interesting to our listeners and definitely has a European angle to it, either through representing a country on the old continent or a project stretching across borders. Today, our guest is Ida Ruizhalme, who is a Finnish biologist specialized in biomedical research, an environmentalist, a writer, and a science communicator. But she's also a mum, taking the future of her children very seriously. We met at the 2019 European Skeptics Congress in Ghent, or Ghent, as they say there, where she gave a talk about the importance of critical thinking when it comes to green energy and decarbonization. Isa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for inviting me. Happy to be oh, here. Yeah, good to talk to you again. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a long, long time ago, and we agreed that we would do this interview. And uh, well, only a couple of months had to pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It didn't forget me. Very nice. <laughs> a left oh, no. impression. Oh yes. No, I I think it was uh, your talk was very interesting, and uh, the the way you communicated the whole thing was absolutely compelling. And I have to say that the main focus of your talk was clean energy, and you made quite a compelling argument for nuclear power generation, uh, which was a bit of a surprise to I think a lot of the members of the audience. So, first of all, as a biologist, how did you start dealing with energy and uh, clean energy, and how did you get to the conclusion that it is something to advocate for? I mean, nuclear power. Yes, I didn't have any background into nuclear power because I was studying biology. Medical biology was in my area. And uh, I was actually, I was against nuclear power to begin with. I think that's okay. sort of the outset because if you're someone who is interested in the environment, it's, it's sort of the typical part of our identity that surely then you're against nuclear power. That's bad, right? <laughs> and 
uh, it's a combination of two things that actually made me more interested about it or made, made me open to the topic was that I had a friend whom I had shared values with who had been anti-nuclear and who went to study radiochemistry in her own words, to make better arguments against nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she said to me in the startling and surprising conclusion that, well, she figured that actually there's a shitload of safety involved, basically, in her words. She said, yeah, they know what they're doing. And I was uh-huh. surprised. I was like, okay, so maybe there's some nuance there that there's, you know, it's not a completely black and white topic. <laughs> and with this in the back of my mind, when I found that I, as a biologist, am not immune to Uh, biases. And I I had made some discoveries about my own topics like agriculture. I wasn't interested in agriculture. I was interested in medical biology. And I realized I had made some assumptions there. And I learned to be a bit humble that, you know, skepticism is something that is helpful to us all because we all can make these assumptions and and be wrong. So I realized, okay, so, so this is true in other areas too. And since I was very environmentally minded, it was very important to me to look at what can we do about climate change? And their energy is a really big topic. And when I was seeing then all these, these headlines, headlines in, in the news about how this one thing is the solution, or we can do everything with renewables, we can do everything with this, we can, we can do everything with nuclear, no nuclear can't be the part of the solution, no renewables can't do anything. And I realized that there's this big confusion there. It's really difficult to make sense of this topic just based on Uh, a layperson's uh, knowledge and and looking at the media. And so I started looking into it with this sort of like open-mindedness, having somebody who I trusted encourage me to think that there's more to it. And I started looking for, basically I started looking for the scientific consensus. How do you find a scientific consensus on on an engineering, on a a technical topic in a way? You can find different aspects of it in science, but it took some digging and getting down to all these looking for uh, what does IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, actually say about these topics? What, what is feasible? What can be done? What does the International Energy Agency say about these things? And it made me really thoughtful and realize that, okay, so actually they all sort of silently say it because you don't see it in the media, especially you didn't several mm. years ago. It was really, really, there was big quiet on the topic that we really need nuclear. They were talking about increasing nuclear together, using lots of technologies, but nuclear was a big part of it, not shutting it down, which was mainly the narrative we see from the media. And I realized, hey, this is a really important topic. And these really uh, knowledgeable sources, expert sources, are saying something that's vastly different from what most people who are environmentalists are saying. How long did this journey take for you? Because you, you... This is a very emotional subject, and we all, yes. as you said, have our biases and stuff. And you probably expected to find—I don't know—what did you expect to find actually? And and how long did it take? I would say that it's—it was a surprisingly long process because ever since I sort of realized that there's—you you can be wrong about something—and I want to find the really the best possible information to to be able to change my mind, I realized that it took a long time to actually change my mind about nuclear power. Mm. Even after I realized that it's not black and white and we actually need it, there was a really big fear connected to it. Every Mm -hmm. time you hear nuclear, nuclear waste, radioactive waste, radioactive, you know, leak or fallout, there's an automatic fear reaction. There's a huge respect. It makes you afraid. What might happen? What, What might the effects be? So 
I would say that it went through different sort of stages where I was a little bit less afraid of a certain part of it and I learned to know more. So that a big part of me getting into it was actually my fear of nuclear waste. So I thought Mm -hmm. that, so nuclear power was very safe in generating electricity, but what do we do about the nuclear waste? And I felt that that this as a dread uh, sort of hanging over the future generations. How can we do this to our children, to leave this threat there? Mm. And then I learned about new technologies where you have breeder reactors that can actually take this existing waste that you have only used a few percent of the energy that we have in the uranium in the fuel and that it's just not quite efficient enough with the old reactors to to use more of it. But with the new reactors, you can actually use most of the energy remaining in that fuel and leave a fraction only of the waste and the waste will only be highly reactive for a few hundred years. Mm. So this was a hugely more, it was, it was a relief to think that, hey, we have a solution. That technology itself can help take care of this very, very dangerous and very, very scary waste. And then as I, as I went further, I realized also that this kind of fear that I have had of the waste, I had in itself quite a lot of myth and quite a lot of bias left. But it hasn't changed my love for the, for the technology to be able to solve things and, and you actually reduce waste, waste, make it less harmful as well. So I would say that it took several years <laughs> from the point of saying, okay, I see that it's good and we probably need it, but I'm still afraid of it, to learning more and more about it during maybe three, four years and realizing that my fear just four years ago was still way out of proportion with the actual knowledge and understanding of the topic. That that fear, the, a large chunk of that fear, however, comes from oh, how nuclear power is portrayed in the media. And uh, it is full of discussing only the bad parts, only the things that happen as an accident or terrible accidents did happen. But in your talk at the European Skeptics Congress, you did point out that those accidents are completely blown out of proportion as well in the media. So what are the actual facts about those that made you accept nuclear as not being a a work of the devil? (laughs) Well, I mean, a big part of it has to do with, for me, to actually looking at the figures. But not only that... You can learn about how many people died. So in Chernobyl, there's this common concept that hundreds of thousands or millions of people probably died. Mm -hmm. This is the the idea that many people have. Mm -hmm. And when you actually look at it as a direct result of the accident itself, you had about 30 casualties of the emergency workers, of people who put out fires. You have about... Uh, 120 workers. So there were thousands and thousands of emergency workers working for years. And about 120 of them had acute radiation poisoning, mm-hmm. which which is a very dangerous condition. But even those mostly, they were managed and they, they could actually recover. So the number of deaths were, were really low. And even after that, they handled it very poorly by not giving out iodine pills because they sort of hush down the nothing is happening here <laughs> nothing to see here mm-hmm. and then young people and children at that time got the radioactive iodine which is the very quick and actually very transient sort of leakage that has a high reactivity and a short half-life and it disappears but during that first time they should have been protected they were actually iodine deficient and because of this you have several thousand cases 
during the next 30 years, we've had uh, several thousand excess cases of thyroid cancer. Now, mm -hmm. luckily, this is actually treated with radioactive iodine. So you have the radioactive iodine treating the cancer of the thyroid. And there may be around 15 or 20 or so deaths so far. So Out the of the several thousand people out of the, who out were of several affected. Thousand, it's so oh. well treatable. Mm -hmm. So deaths are very rare. It's obviously very dramatic to actually have a cancer <laughs> and to yeah, have to course. have radioactive treatment. So it's not just nothing, but it's very well treatable, luckily. Yeah. But the fact that we hear that, okay, so there were 30 deaths and there were a few tens of deaths, there's estimate that maybe the confirmed amount of deaths will be around 200 by the time everybody of that cohort has died. 200 deaths, that somehow doesn't really jive with our idea of how horrible it was. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough to convince you that hey, maybe that wasn't as terrible as we thought. It just doesn't fit with the, the magnitude of fear we have. And for me, at least, it took a lot of delving into why do we fear these things? An appreciation of our natural tendencies of how we approach risk, how we analyze, is this risky or not? Hmm. And realizing that there's these tendencies to anything that is unfamiliar, anything that is artificial and out of our control, we don't have a natural way of, of understanding and handling something, then those dangers, risks are greatly exaggerated mm -hmm. compared to anything that's natural and that we do handle in our everyday lives. So understanding how much that kind of bias plays into how we perceive these helps. I think it's not enough to just hear a number. This, this is how low the death count was. Mm. Because it doesn't, it makes this big like, but surely there must be more. We should also take a step back and understand our own fear and how we view yeah. it. We, we shouldn't also, of course, minimize the, the tragedy for the people that was actually hit by this and people did die. But what you did on your talk was that you compared it a little bit to other energy forms and big accidents that happened there. I think that was that was an eye-opener for me, at least. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, sorry, I, I was too interested in, in the Chernobyl itself uh, to <laughs> come back to your point about the other accidents. Yes. So I realized when I started looking at other, other accidents that we really know about nuclear accidents. We've had two nuclear accidents that have been really major. And we everybody knows those. But how many people know the major accidents in hydro, in coal? In, do we know about those and how many died there? And it's it was surprising to me when I realized that, well, you know, I'm sure there have been some, but I didn't <laughs> know them. I had to do a lot of digging to, to find what kind of accidents have there actually been. And in a way, it felt really callous because then you realize that there are big dam breakages, like Bankiao in, in China is, is the most devastating. It's not all, only on hydro energy production, but it's also used for that. And uh, when it broke, hundreds of thousands of people died. Yeah. Uh, and it devastated large areas uh, of environment, obviously, because it was a big flood. And there are also, mining is a very dangerous business. There have been mining accidents for coal and for other materials that we mine as well, but for coal especially. And it's not only something from the past. As, as recently as in 2014 in Turkey, uh, there were 300 people killed in a mining accident, just like that. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that we pay attention to because we understand rocks falling. We understand a fire. It, it's Of course, it's, it's regrettable, but it's not very, very big news. So in a way, it feels like we're a little bit callous 
if those people didn't die out of something mysterious that we can't really understand well yeah radiation we is something that you cannot see right yeah. yeah exactly we can we can we see smoke we know the smoke is not good to breathe so, so we move away mm. it's it's understandable it's not mysterious or dangerous we know it's harmful but it's not dangerous in our minds yeah 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 floods as well we understand that it's very bad to have a flood coming at you yeah. but it doesn't scare us it doesn't it mm. ha- doesn't yeah. have the same grip you you really listed a couple of very good examples, and uh, one of them I am familiar with is uh, the Vaillant Dam yes. uh, in Italy, which uh, basically washed away a complete village of Longarone. People were just hit by the flood in their sleep, and hundreds actually died in a matter of minutes. And uh, I wouldn't know about this if I weren't a guide traveling through Italy a lot and actually going through that area several times a year and explaining the people what happened there. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, because I had never heard about it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I live yeah. in Switzerland, in the neighboring country now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. never heard of it. And we're talking about hundreds of people. So in a matter of minutes. So uh, when we compare it to what happened with Chernobyl, the numbers are amazingly close. Mm-hmm. And the accident in Longarone actually exceeds the death toll of that of uh, of Chernobyl. Yeah. But when we talk about Chernobyl and uh, if, if flooding happens, people get washed away, but you could start building it up the day after. And we have the impression that in Chernobyl, and it is, of course still secluded and people are not allowed to live there but you've actually been there haven't you yes yes i traveled there i had been uh, researching it and following research that happened in chernobyl because of course then the next question is but if there weren't many direct deaths what about the fact that it's inhabitable uninhabitable sorry and mm. uh, the it was very striking to me to realize that what ecologists have been saying, for instance, about the situation of nature in Chernobyl in the last decades. Very soon after the accident, in the next couple of years, wildlife began returning to Chernobyl because the people had been removed. There were no longer human habitation and forests began to grow through the houses and and so on. And uh, animals took over, basically. And then, of course, they are interested in looking at the health of the animals. How do they compare? There's some spots like the Red Forest that are very highly contaminated, very close to the accident site, uh, the, the power plant in the direction of the wind at that time. And when they trap animals and check their health and, and check population numbers and what kind of animals do they find in the Red Forest compared with unradiated um, forests in that area, they see no difference in their general health. Mm. And that was just astonishing to me. These animals are living in areas with radiation. These small areas where they actually radiation is much higher than what we would ever consider safe for people. And still, this level is so small that it doesn't readily affect their health. There can be changes that can be found. It's it's not that we couldn't, by doing lots of genetic studies, finding if there's small differences. But these differences are really hard to pinpoint. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So actually, the bigger problem with Chernobyl was the fact that because we assume that radiation is so dangerous, we want to minimize it to a level that is extremely low, and we remove all the people from there. Clearly, they had also lost the trust of their government because the government had first tried to to cover it up. So then they tried to gain it back by saying, we will take you all to safety. And it turned out that 
taking them all away was not in their best interest either. So mm -hmm. they got doubly screwed over. And the fact is that most of the areas around Chernobyl should be fine for, for human habitation. They're actually talking now with lots of the villages that are on the outskirts. Look, we've, dis we've done the research for 30 years now. The farming is fine. We've done the research of fields. They're actually sort of semi-illegal farmers that have moved in and started cultivating <laughs> the land. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that if you want, we can try to, to start the political process for opening this place up for you. You can actually start developing your lands again. You can start using them. It's possible to, for life to go on. But, but this is a political and a psychological issue. Those people who actually disobeyed the order of relocation and went back to live in the zone, Chernobyl, living off the land. So they have little villages, little huts there. And they farm and they hunt and they gather and they drink the well water. Uh, they are actually better off than the people who left and relocated to big cities. Mm. By what measures? Uh, by general health measures. By ah, okay. their death rates, their, the surveys that have been done, the health surveys on them, show better statistics than those who moved. And th this is largely, it's not because radiation would be good for them. It's because <laughs> they have accumulated approximately one CT scan over 25 years. So they have, the radiation levels are extremely low compared to how much we fear them. And relocating to a completely new city and feeling that you're a victim of a disaster and having your life uprooted is a very mm -hmm. big health risk. Mm. So actually going back to them was an empowering, they got to keep their lives. And also it's not a big city. And actually big cities have quite a big problem with air pollution, also yeah, in Ukraine. Right. And uh, 60,000 people about die of air pollution in Ukraine every year. Where Chernobyl is, by the way. So Where um, Chernobyl is, yeah, it's yeah. in Ukraine. And you have, uh, you know, 60,000 every year compared to possibly 200 over the course of the cohort's life. So, so yes, you, you could actually inhabit most of the areas. Mm -hmm. While you were transiting from being against nuclear power to being a promoter of nuclear power, it appears to me that you missed out the face of like building up a conspiracy theory in yourself about this whole stuff. Because you <laughs> mentioned the IPCC, you mentioned the government experts of different levels. The natural reaction in a lot of people is that they start to find different conspiracy theories about it very compelling instead of accepting the reality. So how did you avoid that? <laughs> Uh, how do I avoid that? Well, that's that's a very good question. I would say that it's very understandable that conspiracy theories actually offer a more a more reassuring answer sometimes, just mm -hmm. because of the fact that when I realized that what I had thought about nuclear power, and when I realized that, wait, I might have been a bit wrong there, and then finding out the information and the information not immediately making it completely clear. Are there no threats? Are the threats a bit smaller than I thought? Where is the level exactly? This kind of situation where you're a bit uncertain and you're trying to find out and it's not exactly, it doesn't happen instantaneously and you have to work at trying to get it at an understanding. It's a very uncomfortable uncertainty. Mm -hmm. If you have one idea and you know that nuclear is bad, we must get rid of nuclear, we will make the world a better place. It's, it's very empowering and it's very reassuring in its way to have this simple thing to advocate for. Opening up yourself to the uncertainty that, hey, wait, there's these big organizations lots of, with lots of scientists who say, 
on, well, no, exactly, we maybe should use this a bit more. And uh, they open the whole field up. They start eating away at your certainty. If that certainty is very important, and if that unsecurity, open yourself up to that uncertainty, is threatening, if it's too threatening, you want to back up from it. <laughs> you okay. want to have a way of dismissing it. You want to have a reason for why your certainty is better. And then conspiracy theories help you there. Mm. Because they can help explain away anything that would introduce the uncertainty. Why I don't have that, I don't know, maybe I'm a bit sadistic, self-sadistic, <laughs> masochistic. <laughs> I have to, you know, apply uncertainty. I, I suppose that there's a, a bigger part of my identity, which is that I really want to understand. Yeah. That it's not only I want to be anti this or pro this. Mm -hmm. I really want to understand. And then I need to support that identity yeah. by trying to learn more. I think there's a very common tendency also to see things in black and white. It's hard to oh, yes. see it in gray shades. So it's a little bit of this, but also a little bit of that. That's hard work. People don't want to go there. So how do we get people to be more open to that the world isn't black and white? Do you know that? that, that that's a million dollar question, I think. Yes. And I think one important part of it is I, I mentioned that one thing that made me more open to looking at this was that I had a friend. So I had a relationship yeah. with someone. I had shared values with someone. And they presented me with a slightly different viewpoint. And because I knew that we both value many of the same things, it was a gateway. It was a possibility for me then. Because somebody with these motivations would say something like this, mm -hmm. then maybe I can consider it too. So it was sort of a different narrative of a person who I can identify with having a different view. So this is what, what I'm trying to do. And it's as a, as a scientist background, it's something that has been not very natural, not come easy to me. But I realized that I actually have to tell people that, yes, I have small children and I'm concerned for their future. And I'm doing this because of them. Mm. That there's this personal aspect that other people can relate to. And they know that they can know a little bit about me that they can know why am I doing this? Why am I saying these things? Not just because I want their logic to be crystal clear. And if you don't, bad <laughs> on you. <laughs> it's not just about that. We all have some smudges in our logic. And it's, it's just very important for these, because of these things that we all share. We care about our families. We care about our children. We care about the nature. We care about our environment. That this comes first, that we have this possibility of bonding on something that we both share and mm -hmm. appreciate. Yeah. Because if, if they have this, that, you know, our identity is also this, that we love each other, we love the forest, we love these wonderful animals, wild animals that we still have, that we have something that we both uh, have as important parts of our identity, then that allows yeah. the openness to creep into other areas that a person who holds these things as dear can also have interesting different th thoughts about these other areas. And uh, one thing that struck me about your approach to it and, and how you presented these facts at the European Skeptics Congress was how nice you were about it. Oh, I mean, <laughs> it's easy. I mean, it's easy to go into the bashing mode and start criticizing people who believe otherwise or think otherwise. But you were very nice about it, and you didn't try to make enemies. I think it must be part of your personality that you you're just you're just not a fighter. You're, you're more of a talker. This is um, my impression. I think this is what we need in the, the science communication about topics that people have invested so much emotionally into. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that those who think otherwise will not attack you. So have you had any big clashes with uh, those opposing nuclear energy since you've uh, started doing this? I, I, yes, I've had lots of, um, obviously online I get lots of people who tell me that they want to bury lots of nuclear waste under my house. <laughs> Or, or nice. something like this. <laughs> okay. Or so they you, want if you like very that, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they also, uh, I tend to try to make the discussion about the fact that if it's well contained, I don't actually, I'm no longer afraid of it. So so I would welcome it <laughs> in principle. <laughs> but anyway, uh, there, there are a lot of people who try to attack you personally to wish mm-hmm. cancer for your kids. I mean, I really try to take a step back because that... They don't know me. That's not personally against me. Of course, it hurts, but they are probably coming from a place of hurt as well. They're afraid. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're angry. Somebody's trying to hurt their worldview. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to protect it. I've also had, actually, it happens that I was at the UN climate meeting in Bonn and I walked into a anti-nuclear demonstration face to face with people. And when I was there looking and observing what's happening and as we talked with my friend, I was there together with uh, Eric Mayer from uh, Generation Atomic. Uh, he's an opera singer who is also has a, a non-profit that promotes nuclear power. And uh, this is exactly what we thought. That, you know, these are just people just like us. And they all really want to do something for the good of the environment. It's really important to them. But of course, we actually did try to talk to them, which I don't know if it's very wise to look look for those who are most <laughs> for whom it's the most important part of their identity to be against something. That's the hardest situation, basically. It becomes easily a shouting match, and we were shoved and spitted at and, and oh. so on. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I, think, I think then and there is not the moment, maybe, to try to convert no. someone. I can't imagine no. any one of them putting down their plaque and say, okay, we were wrong then. That, that will never happen. So, no. uh, so how should you do it? I mean, what are you doing now to promote your views and uh, yeah. so i was really happy that you thought that i came across as very nice and very building bridges rather than them breaking them because uh, as i said there there are a lot of environmentally minded people and even though i advocate for critical thinking when it comes to green energy for instance i don't do it because i want to show that you're wrong i'm right <laughs> it's a natural sort of uh, instinct to start into this fight mode Saying, yeah. No, I'm yeah. right. You're right. Because because uh, I think it's just part of our sort of evolutionary baggage. This is how we manage a uh, lot of these situations. But uh, I had to learn the hard way, actually. Not that I don't think I'm a nice as person, but I get very heated very easily. And I actually used a lot of time online shocked at people who, in my surroundings in Switzerland, who didn't want to vaccinate their children. And I was really, really upset. Ooh. <laughs> And I was debating with themselves, with all of my, you know, I was polite. I don't call them names. Maybe I call them ignorant. You know, that was, Mm. but, you know, calling them ignorant to their face and saying it's, you know, morally wrong and whatever. It's still, it's a fight. Mm. Yes, it is. And uh, after having that for a year, I had high blood pressure and and this wasn't good for me. And nobody (laughs) was changing their minds. As you said, that's not the way to do it. And I had to do a lot of thinking about what what is it that I'm doing wrong? And, you know, actually, I want them to understand the science. I want them to have the access. So shouldn't I use try to look to science? What is the good way of actually reaching people? There's probably science on that. Mm. And looking at that science, I realized that, yes, it's definitely not conflict. It's more the shared values and also 
it's any people in your surroundings. So your friends and family will be more influential than any stranger on the internet or even an institution. So I think that it's really about trying to reach more people uh, in a positive way rather than try to look for conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no silver bullet, so I don't have the, the <laughs> answer to how you should do it. That's it. Well, I think you can learn from your own experience. You first have to become friends with them, and then you can convince them. So yes. everybody listening to the show, go out and befriend a conspiracy nut. And once you're friends with them, then you can start talking to them about science. <laughs> Yes. Oh, and you could start by not calling them conspiracy nuts. Uh, that, yes. that, that, that probably <laughs> helps. That. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, however, I, I have to say that it's very difficult not to react emotionally, especially when you see misconceptions occasionally deliberately being spread by organizations. So how do you see the role of organizations like Greenpeace in making a change? Because a lot of the things that they advocate for do actually make sense but some things they just get absolutely wrong from a critical thinking perspective one of the things is nuclear power the other thing is, is uh, thing is gmos i'm pretty sure that you have your opinion on both yes yes i i think there's a big difference in uh, between approaching people just people you know people on the street your neighbors so and so on L- most of them won't have a very strong very cemented view on something most of them will hold like any of us some fairly uh, realistic views on some things and some fairly misinformed or misled uh, images that they've picked up so i would say that whenever you make friends with people who are not exactly like you don't have to try to make friends with people who are exactly the opposite of you or think Uh, Or believe every conspiracy theory there is. It might be too difficult and it might be too far away. But try to make friends with people who think a little bit different from you and be, you know, uh, that example. But then when it comes to those people who actually are in positions of power, uh, people who should know better, who, uh, let's say, doctors or or people who have a background uh, which gives them more access to knowledge and also more responsibility in what they say, and then people who like organizations that have cemented their views over a long time and have had ample opportunity and ample scientists trying to point out to them that, hey, you should take this into account. It's not so simple. So then there I'm much harsher. If you have responsibility, you should use that. You should be held accountable that it is completely realistic for you to be able to sit down and look at this science. Lots of people have tried. You should try it doesn't mean that we should stop trying to build bridges with them. So say Greenpeace, for instance, yes, they advocate for a lot of good things. And I grew up being very, very positive about Greenpeace. They they were mm-hmm. my part of my worldview. Then, then it clashed when I realized that I can't reach them on a couple of areas. And it can lead to this atmosphere that the most uh, vehement opposition is not necessarily to people who are completely different from you. It's those people who are closest to your camp, but slightly different in some vital way. So you're and you, you most... can't wrap your head around why yeah, exactly. they don't see your way. You hold them more accountable <laughs> than people who are completely horrible from your perspective, you know. Yeah, because just give up on them. Yeah, you, these people should know better and you can be most vehemently opposed. But And yeah. here, I think it's important to remember that every step counts. It tends to be like this, that if environmental organization or let's say a Green Party politician makes a slight change in how harshly they judge something. Or they say, for instance, well, maybe we should actually keep nuclear plants open. They're, of course, horrible and bad, and we don't want them, and no new one should be built, but it's not a good idea to close them yet. 
you mm-hmm. see a lot of people who then jump into saying how wrong you are on all these accounts, you know, you should really advocate Shame for more you. nuclear power. And while their own base is saying, how can you advocate for keeping the plants open? So they will be between pressed between two hard places instead. And actually, we should encourage incremental change because change doesn't happen overnight and completely. It's always incremental, almost always. Let's not be black and white here. But so if somebody makes a step in the right direction, considers something in a new way that you think has more merit and more better critical thinking, we should welcome that. So when Greenpeace comes out with, okay, we were wrong a little bit about this one little part about nuclear power, we should say, yay, thanks, that is great. We really appreciate that you rethought about this and that you tell everyone. We should welcome anyone who partially begins to open their minds to something. Mm. Because it's not written in stone, things do change. It can feel like for decades that they don't, but it's always possible that they do change. And it will start with little steps, and we should encourage that. I think that is something that we've all accepted who have been long enough in the skeptic movement. Talking about the skeptic movement, have you had connections to the international community of skeptics before the European Skeptics Congress, or is it something completely new to you? Well, I've had a little bit of contact in the way that when I started looking online into scientific and critical thinking and science outreach groups on Facebook after my shock of uh, mommy groups uh, and the kind of stuff <laughs> you, you find there. So I definitely needed to reach out and find something that was different from that. And I did it in English. So then what love what you find is American groups or, or people with lots of Americans and Canadians, maybe Australians. So they sort of introduced me to the skeptic movement there and the skeptics guide to the universe and, and these kind of things. Oh, nice. Just before we go, I'd like to ask how you see the advance of different energy solutions. It's obvious that the energy hungriness of humankind and our ways of living is growing. Yes. So we're not going to be able to reduce power output and and power generation so we we will need a whole lot more of electricity and electric uh, power how do you see the advance of different energy solutions and how optimistic are you about the future well firstly i would say that i think it's very valuable that you say that energy requirements are probably not going to get smaller we probably will need a lot of energy in the future too. Because there's actually a lot of people who do hold this idea that actually we should just all start using less energy. And it's concerning that these people, Good usually luck. usually they're really well off people who live nicely in rich countries who use a lot of electricity. And for sure, I mean, maybe they can see ways of personally reducing their own consumption. But what usually you f- leave out the whole of the rest of the world where people are still using fire, you know, burning coal or dung or something in their homes to cook and so on. So, yes, if we are humanist and we, we would like lots of people to live better, we must accept that they will want electricity because that makes things a lot better. And it's also better for the environment because we actually can produce electricity in a way that doesn't burn and leave and produce a particular pollution. So we need more energy. What I look at a lot concerning to the future is that there's a very little talk of the fact that not only lifting people from poverty will increase the need for electricity, but 
if you have any insight on different kind of big industries that we have today. I've talked with a European chemistry industries representative at a political debate fair in, in Finland, and there's a different industry, a steel industry, where there was big news now, right, right now in, in Finland. The, all these industries are waking up to the fact that we have a problem with, with emissions, we have a problem with materials requirements, we need to reduce and be better for the environment. We need to recycle more, be more efficient, have different solutions. And they say that we can actually do all this. We can recycle everything. We can change our processes. But what we need is loads and loads more electricity without emissions. Yes. So we actually have, if we want a better future with our for our technologies and industries, we really need to have even more clean energy. So this is why I've used so much of my time speaking about nuclear and writing about nuclear power and trying to talk about realities of energy, because I realize that it plays such a huge role. Right now, the steel industry said that by changing their methods, using more electricity, they can actually reduce do zero carbon steel, and steel is 8% of the world's carbon emissions. Yeah. That's a huge hmm. chunk, just hmm. making steel. It is. it is indeed, yeah. So so these kind of processes need a lot of energy. So we need to have all possible ways of producing CO2-free electricity. And here there's there's a lot of picking favorites. Oh, I like this technology. We can do everything with this. Oh, just battery battery technologies will be better and we can do it all with renewables. I'm really humbled after seeing the experts from IPCC and IEA that no, there's no one technology, not even nuclear, even if we started right now and go all out. Uh, what I'm li- really looking forward is small modular reactors. There's lots of there's licensing processes now. We can do maybe district heating, not only electricity, but that with the nuclear there's better battery technologies, but if you look at people who work with them, they say that, you know, it's it's not going to revolutionize anything. It's a really slow process and we might not get much better batteries. So basically, there's a lot of optimism that I think is not quite called for, like that we can just solve it all with renewables. We can see that we hope to produce as much as possible, but it will still be a marginal part. So in a way, I, I'm stuck between being very pessimistic because the expectations of people on how much we will need and where we will get it can be very off. And on the other hand, I would sort of not function if I wouldn't have a reason for some reason for hope and optimism. And I think that the commodities movement and the new people who are really concerned for the environment and are actually actively looking and re-evaluating their views are starting to realize some of the, the problems in this. And not only changing the mind about nuclear, but also economists have realized that maybe we need a carbon fee and dividend. These kind of things that will actually help develop our industries to becoming less dependent on carbon fossil fuels. So I would say that it's a very, very difficult process that we have of trying to get there. But their big part of the difficulty is actually in politics and popular opinion as well. So if we do get the momentum of popular opinion and people realizing some parts of the seriousness of the issue and allowing sort of the energy to the innovation and investment and wanting to solve this problem, then I think we can actually do great things with energy sector. But it's not an easy problem and it's not quickly fixed. So I think that it's great that skeptics are beginning to talk more about this as well. Because Mm -hmm. I think it helps spread the awareness. And we definitely will. Mm -hmm. The fight goes on. Yes. (laughs) 
Well, we just have to make it not look like that much of a fight, but instead yeah. um, some... It's a common effort. Yes. <laughs> a common effort. There we are. Yes. All right. Well, Ida, it's been lovely to talk to you. Good luck with all your efforts. Thanks so much. The effort that is not a fight. <laughs> um, and uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks a I lot. I was very happy to come. Thanks so much for talking with me. It was a joy to meet you again this yeah. way. <laughs> Great. So, Ida Ruizhalme, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Goodbye. Thank you. All right. I believe a lot of uh, very important things have been told in this interview. I hope our listeners found it uh, useful as well. The moment I heard that her talk at the Congress, I approached you right away that I want her on the show. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Anyhow, next week we are coming back with um, a regular episode. Yes, we do. Because we do have a lot of things to talk about. I believe that... Now, we should probably think about how we can deal with that because two weeks can pass with so many things needed to be yeah. talked about <laughs> that uh, it's probably going to be a long episode. <laughs> could be, could <laughs> be. Week. People need poking every week and if we skip a week, then maybe it will be longer. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's like a poking marathon yeah. <laughs> that you will have. Yeah. But we'll definitely be back uh, next week. So thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you very much. And thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe movement the esp is <laughs> something for the outtakes this is episode 100 <laughs> no it's not no 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 it's not <laughs> <laughs> this episode is over 200 thank you it was lots of fun espying with you <laughs> <laughs> okay great <laughs> likewise <laughs> thanks a lot Ida. <laughs>